we did this Waypoint 2050 study, which looked at the different pathways to get to uh, to, to 2050, and figured out that yes, uh, it's an enormous challenge, but it is doable. Um, and we wanted to make sure that that question was able to be answered uh, answered before we actually committed to the goal, because it's very easy to commit to a goal, and we see this happen all the time uh, by companies and by industries around the world without actually having the underlying data su- to support it. So we know that it is possible. Welcome to Sustainability in the Air, the world's first podcast dedicated to sustainable aviation. I'm your host, Shashank Nigam, the CEO of Simply Flying. Every Thursday, I have important conversations with top aviation executives, technology entrepreneurs, and policymakers helping aviation take climate action. Conversations that help separate the signal from the noise. Whether you are a frequent flyer or an airline executive, if you care about sustainability or simply love traveling, welcome aboard. This season of Sustainability in the Air is brought to you by Travelport. Travelport is a global technology firm that powers bookings for hundreds of thousands of travel suppliers worldwide. The company's travel retailing marketplace Travelport Plus helps retailers understand and communicate the most sustainable options. When it comes to sustainability in travel, it can be difficult for travelers and agents to identify which flights, routes and accommodations are the greenest. That's why Travelport empowers its agents to operate as modern retailers of sustainable travel, giving them the ability to access consistent emissions data using the travel impact model. Travelport is also exploring solutions to help travel retailers offer carbon compensation and nature regeneration to their customers. My guest today is Haldane Dodd, the Executive Director of Air Transport Action Group, also known as ATAG. Haldane works with airlines around the world in canvassing support for their sustainability roadmaps and also educating the airlines on climate change and why taking action is so important. You will see how Haldane articulately describes what airlines will need to do, the pitfalls they will need to avoid, and how policymakers can help the industry get to net zero by 2050 or even earlier. Heldin, great to be speaking with you. Very curious about ATAG, what you do, and your journey here leading ATAG. Yeah, absolutely. So the Air Transport Action Group is a coalition of different partners from across the aviation industry. Um, We bring together the airlines, the airports, air traffic management companies, uh, the manufacturers uh, of of aircraft and engines um, to really try and work on issues that are important to the whole aviation sector for the long term. Um, so obviously there are all sorts of challenges that we uh, that we come up against as a sector day to day, but we really look long term. Uh, what are the things that are going to come up in the next ten years, twenty years, thirty years? Um, and we've done that since 1990. Uh, so uh, ATAG was first started in 1990, uh, really as a way to try and tackle some of the infrastructure issues that were going to come up uh, in uh, in air transport uh, in in the future, um, and how we can make sure there was enough runway capacity and so forth. Um, and we've we've sort of shifted 
focus uh, over the years to whatever is the most important thing at the time. So for the last 15 years or so, really, we've been focused on climate change, because if there's one issue that unites the whole industry um, that we can all work on, and we are going to need to all work on together, uh, it is climate change and how, as an industry, we can tackle this really important challenge, uh, which is facing you know not only our industry, but the whole world. Um, so having a united front uh, is really the, the most important thing that we do as ATAG. Uh, and of course, you know, we don't necessarily do it uh, by ourselves. We have all the different partners from across the aviation industry set the tone for the industry and then try and work with governments to make sure that uh, that is reflected in policy that is developed around the world as well. It's interesting you mentioned long-term goals for the industry. That's that's great. But you also mentioned you've been focused on climate change for the last 15 years. But at 15 years ago, this was not a uniting factor. 15 years ago, this was not on the rearview mirror of a lot of airline executives. How and why did you get started that early? What was the impetus? Well, I think one of the benefits of having an association like ATAG is that we can take a step back from the day-to-day. Um, so when we first came up with the uh, the goals that we set, uh, which were for a short, medium, and long-term climate goal for the industry, that was back in 2008. And of course, at that time, the industry was really focused on trying to survive the global financial crisis. Um, so there were all sorts of other things that were occupying the minds of CEOs on a day-to-day basis. We were able to take that step back, look long-term, and think, what are the challenges that we're going to have to face as an industry going forward? And that was also in the lead-up to the Copenhagen climate talks. So there was a lot of pressure on the industry and and all industries to try and respond to that. Um, I think one of the things that's unique about aviation is that even though we are probably the most global industry in terms of stretching around the world, probably alongside shipping, actually, we're a fairly small industry. Um, and, and everybody in the industry knows this. You know, we, we tend to know each other. We, we know the experts. Um, we, we work together fairly well as an industry compared to some other sectors, um, even just on, on operational issues on a day-to-day basis. But we've also managed to do that in systematic change issues as well. So if you look at safety back in the in the late 70s, we were having some real challenges from a safety perspective. As an industry, we all got together and we said, enough is enough. We need to fix this. We're not going to compete on safety. We're going to work together on safety. And we're going to make sure that ICAO has the tools to deal with that uh, from the UN perspective and, and trickle that down to governments as well. We've kind of taken a very similar approach with climate change because we can't do it airline by airline around the world or airport by airport. It's going to require all of us moving together. Some faster than others, for sure, because some have have the ability to do that a bit faster. But actually bringing everybody up to speed uh, is is really going to solve the the global challenge, if you like. I think you made a very good parallel with safety here, because I was speaking with the CEO of SkyTeam recently, who talked about how aviation is the safest industry in the world. It's it's safer to fly an airplane than take a shower or drive a car. And we have achieved that by working together. It is the safest. However, as we start, you know, making strides in sustainability, there seem to be multiple paths different airlines are pursuing. And for the lack of a better word, I don't think there isn't there isn't as much alignment as we would have liked as there is on safety. How do you reconcile the multiple approaches towards what sustainability means and how it can be achieved versus safety is a binary. It's a safe versus this is unsafe. Mm. Whereas what is sustainable is different in different uh, airline CEOs' eyes. So um, there is actually quite a, a, a parallel there. 
we're never going to ever be 100% safe. There is, there, we're never going to get to the point at which we have absolutely no uh, uh, aircraft incidents. But we should be aiming towards that. And as an industry, we're all doing that. And I think we've, we've done a fairly similar thing uh, with, with climate as well. We, we've identified as a whole industry, and we're one of the only industries in the world to have a net zero goal in 2050. How can we all work towards that? Some uh, airlines, uh, through pressure from, from uh, outside organizations, from investors, from employees, from governments, uh, are making uh, faster moves towards that. But I think that the fact that we've got everybody on board, every airline uh, through IATA um, has adopted Net Zero 2050, all the different airports through ACI, the manufacturers, uh, all the air traffic control organizations through Canzo as well, everywhere in the world. But we fully understand that some parts of the world are going to need a bit more time to get there to develop you know sustainable fuels industries to to really push um, on fleet replacement and so forth um, and some some parts of the industry are going to be able to take the sort of early heavy lifting if you like so we're starting to see that um, I don't see a huge divergence in the way that people are doing things C certainly people are taking different tactical approaches to this but when you look at the strategy overall we tend to be moving in the same direction um, just as a, a comparison we, we I spend a lot of time dealing with um, other UN agencies uh, through the UN climate talks, through the World Bank and through other processes um, and other transport modes as well. They don't have nearly the same level of sort of common approach to things. And maybe that's just the, the fact that, you know, if the automobile industry, for example, um, it's, it's individuals that buy cars and drive cars. Um, and it's not big companies that necessarily do that. Um, but having big companies airlines in, in our case who are purchasing these vehicles um, and, and, and flying them around the world um, allows us to have that more united approach uh, in that sense. Um, so we we are actually in a pretty good place um, and I've said a few times in speeches recently that um, uh, you know we've been banging away at this for, for 10, 13, 14 years um, and I've never been more confident that we can actually get to where we need to get to than I am now. And I hope that that's going to continue over time because we're actually seeing so much change happen so quickly uh, just in the last two or three years. Um, and, you know, it does take a little while for people to come up to speed and to really to really move in this direction. But the fact that we're starting to see so many offtake agreements through sustainable aviation fuel, we're starting to see a huge amount of research and, and development and new radical types of technology um, um, it's it's all happening now. It's a really exciting time to be in the space. Uh, we need to push it further. We need to go faster, of course. But actually, I think we're in a pretty good position at the moment. There's so much to dig in there, and we're going to touch on all of the topics from some from some staff to others in just a bit on on this interview. You mentioned the combined the the ICAO um, you know goal to commit to. 2050 net zero mm -hmm. by 2050. That is commendable. But what do you say to skeptics who point out that the commitment is quite weak by relying on schemes like Corsia? So um, anytime you're going to have a UN agreement, uh, it's going to rely on the goodwill of all the countries that have signed up to it and that are there to really put it in place. Uh, the, the, the importance there is that we've got the agreement in place and we can start trickling down that policy level action to, to national um, uh, policy uh, makers um, and also within the industry to start helping to support uh, the action towards that as well. Um, the Paris Agreement, uh, which is the sort of the, the, the gold standard of, of global climate agreements, if you like, is done in a very similar way. 
um, that uh, th there is no sort of top-down push um, on getting towards the Paris Agreement. It's a bottom-up approach. Each country uh, identifies how it's going to meet uh, Paris Agreement obligations. They all come together, figure out that they're not quite there, they need to do even more, um, and that happens uh, again and again. This is what happens at an ICAO level, uh, as, sorry, a UN level, but also, uh, obviously, in, in our case, at ICAO. Um, and that's the way it has to happen when you're trying to deal with 193 different countries that all have slightly different approaches to these things. The important thing is that we've got that goal in place, um, and that we can then, as, as industry, start placing pressure on governments to say, hey, how can you work to support our program towards meeting those goals as well. Um, and it wouldn't have happened without the industry really pushing uh, in, in, in that sense. We, we wanted that agreement to come through. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of governments around the world were a bit nervous about it. What kind of impact is it going to have on the industry? And we were saying, actually, if we don't have a long-term agreement like this, it's going to have even more of an impact uh, on the way that we do business over time uh, anyway. So that's really important. When it comes to things like Corsia, listen, Corsia um, is... Again, the world's first global sectoral market-based measure for any sector in the world. Um, so we are we are trailblazing in that sense. Uh, could it be stronger? Yes. You've got an agreement between, again, 190 different countries all trying to work towards um, a, a common objective. And so there, there will be some leveling off in, in terms of the, the ambition that comes with that. But what we have there is pretty ambitious for an agreement that is reached between governments and industry and civil society as well. Um, so yes, it's something that can maybe be strengthened over time. Um, but at the moment, it's actually a pretty decent piece of work um, uh, th that's been put in place. And of course, I think that the important thing to remember with Corsia is that it's one part of a whole suite of different measures that need to take place in order to get us to our long-term goal. Um, so it's really seen as a gap filler. Uh, while we don't have sufficient quantities of sustainable aviation fuel, while we don't have new types of technology coming on stream, this is a way to at least acknowledge and tackle some of the CO2 emissions in the interim um, and importantly allow the industry to continue to grow because um, having uh, having the, you know, the world's governments on board meant that you need to make sure that some countries are able to continue to grow their connectivity and grow their economy um, whilst others are a little bit more mature um, and don't need to necessarily grow quite so fast. So having that growth across the globe um, whilst also tackling CO2 emissions was the, the idea behind Corsia. Um, and then we sort of figure out what we do in the 2050 timeframe with, with the net zero commitment as well. So Corsia fits into that process, but actually the most important work comes from reducing CO2 emissions through SAF, through new technologies and so forth. Got it. So what you're saying is Corsia is the minimum base level everyone agrees with. And then... It wasn't uh, well. I would I would argue that it was the minimum. Actually, there was there was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get Corsia, um, and and there was there was a lot of challenge uh, to to get that as well. So I don't think it's the minimum. We could have got a lot less. Uh, what we got was actually a pretty decent um, scheme uh, at a global level, um, and it has some some very good integrity in the way that it is choosing the type of offsets that are available. Uh, the, the the way that the scheme is actually put together uh, for a global system is very robust, and that's one. Of the things that I think sets us apart from other sectors. Other sectors have tried doing this. Maritime has been talking about some type of market-based measure for at least as long as we have and hasn't been able to put something in place uh, so far. Um, and other sectors around the world um, have, have tried thinking about these things as well. We, we managed to achieve
achieve it. Um, and yes, we can we can maybe make it uh, more robust over time uh, and and start bringing in um, more and more strength in terms of the types of um, uh, of offsets that are available, including things like carbon removals as we move towards those options. Um, but actually, we have a pretty good system in place, and we need to make sure that that is uh, um, supported in the way that uh, that we've seen so far. 118 countries around the world have volunteered to be part of Corsia so far. Uh, that's pretty extraordinary. No, absolutely. I think uniting everyone is a huge achievement already. And of course, like you said, some of these efforts are then accentuated or catalyzed by the EU or the the US mm-hmm. policy, for example. And in fact, one of the latest EU policies is, of course, the EU SAF mandate that was announced, where uh, you know it's mandated that airlines have 2.5 percent SAF by 2025. I think six percent 2030. 70% by 2050 and an increasing use of e-fuels versus mm-hmm. biofuel. How do you think the industry will get there? And are you optimistic that we will get there? Uh, I am. Um, and I think uh, optimistic because uh, we've achieved some great things in the past and we can continue to agree uh, to, to, um, um, to, to achieve some great things uh, in the future as well. Um, We've done all the work that we need to do to um, figure out how we reach those goals. So when we first set the goal of net zero 2050, which was uh, you know an increase on the ambition that we had from uh, from sort of 13 years earlier, uh, we did a whole heap of work to figure out what is possible. Is net zero possible for aviation, given our growth profile, um, given the technology that we know is available, given things like feedstocks for sustainable aviation fuel? So we did this Waypoint 2050 study, which looked at the different pathways to get to uh, to, to 2050 and figured out that, yes, uh, it's an enormous challenge, but it is doable. Um, and we wanted to make sure that that question was able to be answered uh, answered before we actually committed to the goal because it's very easy to commit to a goal and we see this happen all the time uh by companies and by industries around the world without actually having the underlying data su- to support it so we know that it is possible um i think you know the work that ICAO can do in, in putting in place a, a government role in this process, including with sustainable aviation fuel. Hopefully, this year we're going to get uh, an agreement at CAF three uh, for a, a global goal on SAF uh, deployment around the world. Helps to underpin uh, that long-term thinking. Um, and importantly for us, it, it does a couple of things. First of all, it says to governments, "Hey, you're on the hook as well. You need to also put in place the right policies to help support SAF deployment uh, around the world." Um, but also for the finance uh, industry, for the energy industry, they are going to really need to step up in ways that they haven't so far. So the finance industry is really interested in SAF. Um, we need to you know, have a lot of investment in, in sustainable aviation fuel infrastructure. Um, but the energy industry really isn't uh, where they need to be. We've seen a, a couple of standout um, suppliers of, uh, of, of our traditional oil starting to move into the SAF space. Uh, you know, the, the names are, are fairly familiar, but most of the oil industry really has not got where it needs to be in order to start delivering the quantities of SAF that we need in 2030, 2040, 2050, and so forth. Um, and uh, I, I'm expecting them to play a much bigger role than they probably are willing to at this stage. Uh, and You're sometimes right. that has to happen right. through government mandates. You know what? Government mandates are incredibly useful, be it the EU SAF mandate here in the EU or uh, the IRA in the US, where there are incentives uh, mm-hmm. being being given now uh, for SAF production. Yeah. 
you of course mentioned financial institutions and i remember you recently attended uh, a session in washington dc where you emphasized the need for support from the finance sector yeah if you were to put a figure on it how much investment needs to be raised for saf to become commercially viable or you know even for new technologies like hydrogen to finally take flight sure so um there's a few different things to unpick with that uh the first one is uh you know, SAF being commercially viable. Um, at the moment, the, there is not uh, the supply of SAF that we need to meet the demand that we have at the moment uh, already. So the, the, the demand is outspl- uh, outstripping supply uh, around the world. It's very hard if you're an airline to be able to access sustainable aviation fuel. That's will, that will change. More and more plants are going to be opening uh, over the next uh, few years. And there's going to be actually a real uh, boom in, in SAF deployment uh, over that period. Um, so... Uh, the commercial side of things is really important. We need to bring the cost of SAF down. Part of that story is to increase the production uh, availability. Um, and different types of SAF have different uh, profiles when it comes to that. Um, so in some parts of the world uh, where SAF is going to be mainly produced from different types of feedstock, that's actually quite a large part of the production uh, cost uh, of, of the end product, if you like. Uh, but then when you're looking at uh, things like power to liquid uh, opportunities or e-fuels, sometimes called um, actually the infrastructure is probably the more uh, costly part of the, um, the the production process because obviously sunlight doesn't have a lot of cost attached to it wind doesn't have a lot of cost attached to it and so forth it's the infrastructure to capture those things uh, that's important um, so that, that's different depending on whichever um, uh, SAF you're talking about um, the cost in terms of the uh, the capital expenditure that we think might be required, uh, according to some analysis that we had done, is around one and a half trillion dollars uh, over the next. 30 years. Uh, that's about $48 billion a year on average, uh, which is uh, about 6 or 7% of the typical uh, uh, oil and gas capital expenditure that they usually spend. So actually, it's not out of the realm of, of, of possibility. It's a big number, certainly big for individuals to, to try and contemplate. But when you look at the amount that is spent on oil, uh, oil and gas uh, exploration and capital expenditure every year, which is the energy that we have access to at the moment, actually it's it's not out of the realm of possibility. Um, but that's where financing comes in. Um, so this is a really important uh, topic, particularly as we move towards uh, starting to develop SAF in countries outside of the traditional developed world, if you like. Um, we know that most of the... Um, uh, the um, the, the sort of the, the scale up uh, is going to come from private finance, private capital, institutional investors, pension funds, those that really uh, have got a lot of capital to be able to put into uh, this type of energy supply. Um, but in, particularly for developing countries, we know that there will be a need to de-risk the investment in those countries. And so having access uh, to development capital through things like the multilateral development banks to provide blended finance whereby they can maybe de-risk some of of the early investment uh, so that private capital can take over um, after that is really important. So we held a, a workshop with the multilateral development banks, the World Bank, the, the different regional development banks uh, in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago. We're also talking to the private finance institutions, the, the big pension funds around the world, the big banks around the world, because we know that at some stage their scale-up capital is going to really have to come in uh, as well. Um, and you know they're, they're very interested in this, um, but 
they want to make sure that that demand is available uh, as well. So that's why having demand from airlines is important. Already we've got uh, just over 30 airlines that are committed to at least 10% SAF by 2030 uh, in their fuel supply. Uh, that makes up about 40% of global uh, jet fuel supply. So this isn't a small quantity. Already we've got uh, some significant demand um, uh, push there. Um, but also uh, when it comes to governments, having a, a goal at ICAO, having uh, some uh, you know, policies in place around the world uh, from governments uh, are really important as well. Mandates are one option. Uh, but they're not the only option. Whenever we talk about mandates with governments, we say, actually, that's a useful backstop to any kind of uh, efforts and policy that you can put in place to help support the supply of SAF. Because there's no point in just having the demand there from a mandate if you don't have the supply there to actually fulfill that mandate. Um, so it's almost more important to help de-risk investment in, in new plants uh, to, to make sure that there is a SAF industry to help supply uh, aviation. Um, and then maybe there's a, a, an opportunity to have a mandate as a bit of a backstop to that to make sure that the demand is locked in, if you like. Uh, but you don't need to start with a mandate. There's a package of measures that you can put in place. From the Thank you so much. That is so insightful. And I appreciate all the research that you and the entire ATAC team has been doing here. Given that SAF is much more expensive than the traditional jet A fuel, I'm assuming it is also more profitable for the oil company to be making this. So why isn't there a gold rush of every single player trying to produce as much SAF as they can tomorrow? Why are there still just a few players within the oil and gas sector or the finance sector who are backing this, given it's, it costs way more to produce? Well, it co they can sell SAF for a lot more. And hopefully reap profits there as well. I think possibly they'll tell you it costs more to produce as well. Um, I, I don't know exactly how that plays out. You're going to have to ask the the oil companies that. Uh, if, if, if I was the CEO of, the oil, of, a, of an oil company not being an oil man, if you like, um, I would be asking the same questions because, you know, the demand for alternatives to fossil oil are going to grow over time. And if, if I was looking at the future of, of my company or my industry, if I was an oil person, um, I'd be looking to say, hey, we're going to have uh, you know reducing uh, demand from the consumer market, from, from cars, uh, from, from trucks, from aviation as well. Um, I might as well start getting into this uh, this opportunity very early on. Some of them have started to take up that challenge. Uh, others haven't. And, and you have to ask them why uh, they uh, can't seem to draw themselves or pull themselves away from oil. But I'd imagine it's just because it's incredibly profitable. If you, if you look at the, um, the, the profits that were made by the 10 largest oil companies in the world in one year, last year alone, it was $450 billion dollars. $450 billion in one year from 10 companies. And I think that sounds a bit more um, like the GDP of a middle-sized country. A uh, fairly large com country, I'd say, as well. Yeah, I mean, th this is hugely profitable in the way that they do things at the moment. Uh, and they can't continue to operate in that way. It's not going to last forever. And maybe they're just sort of grabbing whatever they can while they can, while it still lasts. Um, but if we're going to tackle the climate crisis, we're not going to be able to keep pumping uh, fossil fuel out of the ground. We just aren't. Yeah, no, that that's fair. Uh, we spoke a lot about SAF already, Helding. What about newer technologies like hydrogen, hybrid electric, fully electric, 
what role do you see them playing in the future of aviation? Yeah, so this is one of those things that um, I'm incredibly excited to see so many um, uh, projects that are looking at these types of radical new technologies underway right now. Um, and so it's a very exciting uh, time to be in this space. I think it's really important to make sure that we um, see that with uh, the, the reality of the situation going forward. Um, there's a lot of hype uh, that's being put out not by the traditional aviation players, but by some of these new guys that are coming in from Silicon Valley, sort of expecting to be able to just fly within three years on a radical new uh, aircraft. That's not going to happen. We, we care too much in aviation about safety and making sure that we have the right uh, testing in place and, and certification in place. Um, but there are some real potential opportunities that exist uh, in, in this area. So electric aviation, for example, I'm fairly sure that by the end of this decade, we're going to see small electric aircraft uh, flying around, sort of nine seats, maybe up to 19-seat aircraft, um, and, and hybrid electric as well. Um, and, and there's some really good examples of that. Um, being put into place and, and, and the technology is really maturing in that uh, in that area now. Um, hydrogen, uh, if it works, uh, if we can make the, the technology work not only on the aircraft but in terms of the distribution system, could be a real changer, a game changer for the short haul market. Um, and so in the waypoint scenarios that we, we put together with experts from across the industry, particularly in the, in the most optimistic scenario, they come in and around about 2035, 2040 timeframe in the sort of A320, 737 size uh, aircraft market um, and uh, grow from there a, a little bit as well. But um, whichever scenario we looked at, um, sustainable aviation fuel, the drop into the existing aircraft that obviously will be there for quite a number of years yet, plus also their replacement in the larger medium haul and long haul market um, are going to have to rely on SAF. Uh, and so that's why there is such an emphasis on SAF at the moment, partially because we know that that is one of the solutions, but also because we need to convince others outside of the aviation specific space to be part of that process. So that has to be energy companies, as we said before, it has to be uh, the finance industry uh, and governments have to come on board uh, and help uh, make sure that we have the right policies to get SAF in, in place as well. So I think there's going to be a mix of a range of different things. Um, what what ends up being the, the sort of situation of aviation in 2040 or 2050 will kind of depend on how that technology develops. Um, but what we wanted to do was make sure that we could at least push on some of those radical new technologies, whilst also making sure that we had a backfill if we couldn't get those to work. Um, and that's why we, we've got the different scenarios, one of which really looks at building up through SAF alone, um, and one which uh, really pushes on the technology side as well. Uh, we, need to, uh, we need to have all, all bases covered. That that makes sense, you know. For for short haul, we'll see electric and and hydrogen coming in. Yet you've got SAF uh, use that's that's growing. The thing is, there seems to be lots of skeptics, not just among the climate activists, but also uh, within and outside the industry, who keep saying, "Oh, there have been targets published in the past that aviation has not met." For example, around SAF uh, use. Uh, what do you say to skeptics to convince them? you know what, this time is different. This time we are going to do it and we are united as an industry. Well, we've never really had SAF targets. We've, we've had some uh, suggestions of what it could be, um, but they were never adopted as targets by the industry. Um, the, the, the one that is most um, sort of used as a, as a, as a goal within uh, sort of SAF space has been around 2% by 2025. And I think that we're fairly confident that we can actually get there. Um, we're going to be looking at what the opportunities are for goals in uh, 2030 or, or 2050 as well. Um, and so 
now that we've got a much better understanding of exactly where SAF can come from, what the production ramp pump is, um, we are going to be able to put out targets that the whole industry can agree to um, and 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 stick uh, to as well. Um, so in the past, there have been suggestions of where we might be, and some of them have been fanciful for sure. Um, but there's never really been an industry goal on SAF use in that way. Uh, it, it just hasn't existed. Even if if uh, some of the environmental groups maybe have tried to say that so we've had goals and we've missed them every time. The only goals that we've had as a, as a whole industry, and, and even as, as different parts of the industry like IATA and so forth, have been a short-term goal of 1.5% fuel efficiency improvement up until 2020, which we met. In fact, we exceeded. Um, has been a carbon neutral growth from 2020 onwards, which we have Corsia to help fulfill. So we've achieved that as well in terms of we're not having achieved it yet, but we've achieved the mechanism to, to make that happen. Um, and a long-term goal, uh, which was originally uh, to reduce our CO2 emissions by 50% below what they were in 2005 by 2050. Um, and we've actually increased that goal to net zero 2050 uh, just a, a couple of years ago. Um, so any goal that we've set as an industry, we've achieved or in the in the process of achieving, or we've ramped up the ambition there as well. I'm glad to hear that. I'm, and thank you for clarifying uh, that, that situation. The other challenge here is as more fuel efficient aircraft enter the market, as airlines reduce the per passenger carbon footprint through optimization, more people fly and there are more flights taking off and landing. So aviation has always been growing and the combined footprint of aviation grows even though the per passenger footprint comes down. How do we consolidate or, or balance this our growth versus sustainability? Can this exist? Um, absolutely. You're right, though. The the challenge that we've got is growth. The challenge isn't technology. We, you know, we've we've done an amazing job of reducing the fuel uh, use per passenger kilometre. Uh, in fact, that's less than half of what it was 30 years ago. It's one of the the most um, uh, sort of uh, uh, impressive efficiency improvements of, of any transport mode around the world. And we've managed to do that uh, with some amazing technology, some some great use of uh, new operational procedures, um, and by putting more people on aircraft. Uh, as well. Um, so we, we have achieved that. If, if we weren't growing as an industry in terms of uh, passenger numbers, actually our CO2 emission would be coming down very significantly. But we are growing because of uh, the, the increase in demand in air travel around the world. Um, mostly in developing countries. And of course, it's really important uh, to, to keep connectivity growing, to keep economies growing around the world as well. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we've set up uh, the Corsia uh, system the way that we have, why we have the long-term goal agreed through ICAO the way we have, is because we need to balance the need for developing countries to continue to grow, to continue to serve uh, their own national economies, to, to serve trade, tourism, family connections, that we've managed to grow uh, around the world whilst also uh, dealing with CO2 emissions. Uh, there's, there's no problem with flight. Flying is fantastic. Traveling is fantastic. We should be doing more of it because building those connections is really great for humanity as a whole. The, the problem is CO2 emissions. We need to be dealing with that. Um, and so that's where we've been focusing our, our, um, our challenge is to try and tackle the CO2 emissions whilst ensuring that their growth can continue in the industry. Um, we've seen... I think some fairly um, significant growth in the sort of 10 years or so before COVID. Uh, it was very high levels of growth around the world. I don't think we're probably going to get up to that uh, uh, again uh, in the future. 
maybe I'll be wrong, but certainly the forecasts that we've got um, from now until 2050 that have uh, made the, themselves part of uh, Waypoint 2050 have um, based on a slightly lower growth profile, which is a little bit more in line with historical growth profiles. Uh, because the last 10 years before COVID, actually, there were some, some fairly steep growth uh, uh, paths. Um, I don't expect that to come back quite as, as much, but we will continue to grow. I think that is well stated as well. Uh, I think the two uh, aspects of the ESG equation is, you know, the social aspect of yeah. flying is so good and connects the fabric of the society, whereas the environmental aspect of flying needs to be addressed and, and balanced out. A lot of airlines have recently started to state openly what they are trying to do yeah. uh, to address sustainability as they continue to grow while they grow. But unfortunately, this has been backfired for some of the airlines. And you know, there have been greenwashing claims of late against Lufthansa, Etihad, Austrian, and even Ryanair, who are at the receiving end. What's your view on this greenwashing phenomenon, which is, of course, you know, huge in, in Europe, especially? And what can airlines do to avoid this claim? You are a communications expert. What would you advise them? So I think, listen, I think we need to be ambitious as an industry. We need to show what we're doing as well, because it's actually really important to take a leadership position uh, in this area. Um, so that is important. I don't think we should stop communicating on climate change at all. We do need to be careful about making sure that any claims are substantiated. Um, and it is important to make sure that that is in place. I think some of these greenwashing claims are a little unfair, because uh, in many cases, when you're doing an advertisement, you can't put in all the terms and conditions, you can't put in, you know, your entire um, sustainability report, which backs up uh, everything that you're saying. Uh, it's impossible to do it in an ad or, or in a, a social media advertisement or something like that. Um, so it is a little bit unfair. We are being targeted a bit too much, but uh, it is really important if we are going to be uh, going along this path and, and very much insist that everybody within the industry should be doing it, that those, those claims are substantiated and that you don't overstretch in terms of the way that you talk about uh, some of these things. So it is fair enough to say you can't fly green entirely green today we are producing co2 emissions today you can offset for sure that's one of the options available if you buy 100 saf today then yes actually there is a, a, an opportunity to fly in a much more green way uh, than in the past but we are going to take a little while to achieve uh, our long-term goals uh, to achieve where we need to get to um, and so making sure that we have a robust pathway in place making sure that every part of the industry not only relies on the work that we do at a global global level trying to set the pathways towards net zero, but also investigates what each airline, each airport needs to do in order to reach those goals themselves as well is incredibly important. We can't uh, do everything from an ATAG perspective, from an IATA perspective. Um, it, it has to be done on a, a company by company basis um, as well. And, and it's a really important part of the process for each company to look at what it needs to do to reach net zero uh, in 2050 uh, by itself. Um, and some things will be different between different airlines or different airports, but we can all start the process to actually uh, um, identify uh, the pathway to get to net zero uh, on an individual corporate level. Um, we're also pushing for, for governments to do that from a, a national level as well. Um, but on a corporate level, figure out what you need to do uh, to produce SAF in your own country, figure out what you need to produce to do uh, to, to make your uh, own operations greener um, and, and make that all publicly available. Um, so 
uh, we are going to need to be more transparent uh, as an industry uh, than we we have been uh, so far. Um, obviously, there are some commercial considerations to take into into account there, but um, I think that you'll see that you know that those that airlines, those airports um, that have the most robust sustainability plans and in place and are starting to work on them uh, will be in a better position uh, than than some of the others around the world. Um, yeah, I think transparency becomes increasingly important when it comes to communication. I think British Airways recently released their very transparent and very detailed report. They have a fantastic website detailing all their sustainability progression as opposed to just doing ads. I think people want long form information. Perhaps being on podcasts like this is more effective in communicating than just in a Facebook ad, for example, which doesn't yeah. communicate much. Uh, but, you but, yourself- but, but we do need to communicate more on this. Um, yeah. And it, you know, it shouldn't just be done through ads, but we, we do need to be out there yes. talking about this, talking about what we're doing. There are some fantastic stories within the industry. There are, there are, there are great things that that people are doing all across the world and it's not just in the developed world either it's it's in other parts of the world so we should talk about it um, but we just need to make sure that every claim that we have out there is is able to be substantiated substantiated exactly now the interesting thing is i was i was recently having a call with an asian airline ceo and i said you are doing so much when it comes to sustainability nobody knows about it outside of your team why don't you talk about it and he asked me shashank didn't you see what happened to KLM? And, you know, I, I was surprised that was coming from him, but there's this sense of fear and that leads yeah. to green husking on uh, the yeah. other end. But to be honest, I feel that the industry is fighting on the back foot here or, or playing defense when it comes to communication. Who do you think is doing right and doing it right? And who, what do you say to a CEO who says, Oh, you know what? I just want to be cautious and not talk about anything. Listen, we're not going to change the world if we don't get out there and do it. Um, and I think uh, a number of environmental groups, particularly those that are really going after those um, parts of aviation, but any other industry that are targeting with with um, with um, you know legal suits that are going after their advertising. They're going after the players that are trying to make a difference, and it's going to backfire from a climate perspective. We want um, CEOs to take a leadership position on this. We want them to do it in the right way, for sure. We, we don't want um, them to sort of rush too fast into things that might not be sustainable in the future. But as an industry, we're actually in a really responsible position right now. Um, and I want CEOs to have the, um, the, the the backing to be able to do that. Um, you will always have some environmental groups come after aviation because they don't like the concept of flying. They don't like the concept of, of connectivity around the world. Um, but in many cases, when they come after CEOs that are actually doing something, like KLM uh, is, is doing a fantastic job, um, like the Lufthansa group, they're trying to be responsible. If they come after them, then the CEOs are going to say, well, why should I bother? So it's going to backfire on the environmental group and, at the end of the day, backfire on the climate because you're not going to have um, the, you know, the companies that are willing to step out there and, and do things. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think, uh, yes, we need to be cautious in terms of the way that we go about things, but that shouldn't reduce the ambition of trying to get where we need to get to. As long as you've got the right sustainability criteria in place, as long as you're doing your due diligence on you know, the types of offsets that you buy or the types of SAF that you buy, um, as long as you're not going out there and making claims that you can't substantiate, go out there and do them. Because 
we're not going to actually move our industry or any industry in the world if we if we sort of step back and be too too scared to do anything um so uh, I don't know. I, I I think that there's there's a lot of blame to be put on some environmental groups for putting backwards progress in this area. And and just as a case in point, outside of aviation, but the 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 case of the the Greens in Germany um, holding back on nuclear power. What happened when there was a, a crisis around gas? They went back to coal, and so German CO two emissions have gone up um, because the Greens were so uh, wrapped up in the idea around nuclear. Um, and you're, you're seeing climate change action in Germany go backwards because of this. Uh, we don't want to see that happen in aviation. We, I mean, what, what's the fallback if we're not investing in SAF? What's the fallback if we're not talking to our customers about it? We're just going to use fossil fuel. And that's no solution for anybody. So, you know, I, I think we have been taking a very responsible path as an industry. I'm very proud of the way that we've achieved, that we've gone about this, that we haven't just rushed headlong into it, that we've done all of our due diligence, that we've got the right sustainability criteria, not only within the, the airlines themselves, but also at a UN level through, through ICAO. Um, but we've also uh, made sure that we have multiple pathways to go down, that we don't just go after power to liquid. We don't just go after heifer-based sustainable aviation fuel. We're not only sitting back relying on uh, hydrogen to potentially come in at a later stage. We've got a whole range of different options available to us. We're doing it in a very responsible way. Um, so I'm very proud of the way that we've, we've done that. Uh, we do need to move a bit faster, for sure. Uh, and we, we need to sort of push where we can. But actually, we're, we're in a good position. Thank you, Heldin, from not shying away from, from that tough question. Now, you yourself at ATAG uh, have been communicating on behalf of the industry. In fact, you produced a series of videos last year about young aviation professionals and aviation's net zero goals. Tell us about why you did that and what was the thinking behind it. Sure. So when we agreed as an industry to go to net zero uh, back in 2021, in October 2021, um, you know, it was a, it was a, a risk. We, 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 we knew that we could do it because we'd done the studies to prove that uh, that was a possibility. But sticking our head out there and saying we want this to happen uh, was really important as an industry. But we wanted to make sure that governments were uh, able to be um, empowered to actually get on board with that as well. Uh, and so we thought, who better to talk about that than the leaders of aviation in the future? Not the guys necessarily leading the industry today, but those that are going to have to uh, be responsible for actually meeting the goal in 2050, uh, those that want to have good jobs uh, as the industry progresses, um, and also those that are really concerned about the planet um, as a whole. So we reached out to uh, nearly 100 uh, young aviation professionals from all over the world. Um, we asked them some key questions. Why, you know, why is net zero important? Why is climate action important to you personally as, as a professional? Um, and they were able to to come back with some, some fantastic answers, put that together into a video. Um, and the, the key uh, purpose of that was to say to the governments, uh, you know, have some guts. Uh, this is going to be a challenge. This is, this is not an easy thing for you to agree to. Um, and this will be the first time any sector has actually got this kind of goal at a global level. But uh, the future of the aviation industry wants you to do this. The, the future CEOs and pilots and, and engineers want you to do this. Uh, and, uh, and, and so you should, uh, you should have faith that uh, your decisions that you make today will still be um, uh, useful for us in 30 years' time. 
Uh, and that's where we came up with the idea of doing the video and, and then sharing it to the uh, delegates at the IKO assembly. Uh, and that had a, a really big impact. And, and the number of delegates that came up to us at the end and said, thanks for, for pulling those voices together. It was a really important part of the, the process because sometimes when you're sitting in a room negotiating between governments, you forget the importance of the, the impact that your decisions will make uh, on the future of those that actually need to fulfill them. I thought that was quite a masterstroke in storytelling and how communication can be done right. Getting young people talking about the future, talking about the future of the industry. We've seen the videos. We were very impressed and, and well done. Congratulations on that effort. I think it's just exactly what the industry needs when it comes to communicating their efforts um, and the motivations. What gives you the most hope about the long-term future of the industry, Haldane? Because you, like you said at the beginning of the interview, are focused on the long term. Mm -hmm. What gives you the most hope and why are you an optimist? Um, well, I'm an optimist just generally anyway. Uh, I think that humans have an enormous capacity to deal with some some big issues. Um, we don't always do it perfectly. We didn't you know, deal with COVID perfectly, but actually as a world, we came out of it in relatively good shape. Um, obviously, there were a lot of tragedies along the way in that sense, but um, you know, the, the impact of COVID on the globe uh, as a whole um, is is not too bad. Our response to it was not too bad. Huge lessons to be learned from that. But um, but you know, as a whole, we we kind of dealt with it relatively well. Um, climate change is a slightly different story. Uh, we've been known it's 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 been an issue for a long time. Uh, we are struggling to deal with it as a global planet. Um, but every day you see movements towards. Um, uh, you know some progress in that area in terms of CO2 reductions from different sectors around the world. Certainly in aviation, we've we've come a long way uh, in doing what we need to do. Um, but I think the the thing that makes me most optimistic about the way aviation can deal with it is the fact that we have dealt with these challenges in the past. As I said before at the beginning of the interview, we've dealt with the safety uh, challenge together, working together. Um, I see uh, dedicated people that have been working on this within aviation for the last 10 or 15 years, uh, people that I know across the sector from airports and airlines that have been very focused on, on dealing with the climate change challenge for a long time. All of our efforts really in the last couple of years have come to a point where it's just exploded in terms of activity. Um, it's sometimes really challenging for us to keep track of exactly what's happening uh, in SAF, in, in new technology developments, trying to keep a handle on all the different announcements that are coming out. Um, and that's a great thing. Uh, we've, we've kind of lost lost a little bit of control over it, but that's, that's brilliant because it says that so much uh, is happening across the world. Um, so that's what kind of gives me hope um, as well. Um, and the fact that we, we need to do it, um, that there's no other way. We, we're going to have to deal with our climate impact as an industry, as part of the broader, bigger global economy uh, question. Uh, and I think that we can get there. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic that we can actually make the difference that we need to, uh, that we can get the SAF supply that we need to, that we can bring on board these new technologies as well. It's going to be messy. Uh, it is, it, it, these transitions never are easy. Um, but, um, you know, all the signs are pointing to the fact that we can actually get this done. I'm glad to sense the optimism and I'm now feeding on it. <laughs> good, good, good. Is, good. There, is there anything we have not spoken about today that, you think we should cover uh, right now? Um, no. I think we covered off most of it. Yeah. Um, well, then thank you so much for being upfront. <laughs> no problem. Every single question uh, heads on. I really appreciate um, not just the work that you're producing 
at ATAG, we've gone through the reports and some of the videos and the work that you've done, but also just helping the entire industry come together to move forward rather than just in their own directions because we move way farther when we are uh, no. working together. And that's what gives me the most hope as well. Thank you again, uh, Heldin, for your thoughts. My my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for helping to sort of push this as well. I think one, one of the things that I'm conscious of is, <clears throat> you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of communications people tend to try and focus on um, highlighting their brand, if you like, their, their company. I don't care about that. I don't care if, if nobody in the world knows who ATAG is. My job is to make sure that the industry is, is front and center. Um, and so being able to provide that platform um, so that others can then tell that story, but in a united way that makes it more effective um, is, is really where I see our you know, duty and our responsibility. Sometimes people, you know, get to hear the ATAG voice, if you like. Um, and certainly at ICAO, um, you know, we've, we've been fairly instrumental in sort of, you know, rallying countries towards a common objective. The long-term goal last year was, was one of those times. But, um, you know, whenever my mum's uh, friends say, well, who does he work for? He's, you know, he, he's, he, he seems to be flying all over the place and, and, and speaking to lots of people, expecting it to be a big brand. Actually, I don't, I don't mind that they don't know what ATAG is, um, but I, I do care that they know that aviation is working together to solve these big challenges. So if we can do that, then that's fine as well. I think we are very well aligned in that mission, Heldin. It's the same with my daughters. They don't know what simplifying is, but they yeah. know what I'm trying to do uh, and help aviation make better, um, make make aviation better. And we are very well aligned. We are trying through this podcast and our upcoming book, trying to get first person stories on how is the industry moving forward? How are the innovators trying to do things differently? And, and we do hope to inspire a whole new generation uh, who takes aviation in the in a greener direction. Yeah, Thank that's, you. That's Hey, no problem. Uh, thank you very much uh, to you as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sustainability in the Air. Aviation is one of the hardest to decarbonize industries, yet there are multiple paths to get to net zero. Awareness is key to a green future. So please give us your support to help our sustainable aviation insights reach a wider audience. You can do this by sharing this episode on your network, on LinkedIn, Twitter, or even WhatsApp. Or perhaps you might consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this episode. You can start a conversation with us by writing to us at podcast at simplifying, that's simply with an I, dot com. And for more content on sustainable aviation, please visit our website, green.simplifying.com and join the movement. Sustainability in the Air is an original podcast by Simplifying. The show is produced by Uri Toth in Slovakia. Dirk Singer is our Director of Sustainability who leads research for each interviewee out of Greenwich, UK. Shubhadeep Pau is our Supervising Editor based out of Mumbai and Singapore. The articles are written by Ayushi Badola in Dehradun in India and Mira Hull in Montreal, Quebec. Creative design is led by Lihia Esteve in Montreal. Baiba Dreamen is the project director for the show based out of Valencia, Spain. Special thanks to Wendy Sim in Singapore. And I'm Shashank Nigam, the CEO of Simplifying and your host. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn.